It's the Paul Leslie Hour. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, and this episode features an interview with clarinetist and recording artist David Krakauer. It's not often an album is so instantly alluring as David Krakauer's The Big Picture. David Krakauer is a clarinetist extraordinaire, and The Big Picture is his renditions of 12 songs from major movies throughout the years. And what a collection it is. At the forefront is the clarinet. But what makes this record so great is how innovative Krakauer is at interpreting the songs. Perhaps the most represented are songs from Woody Allen films, Si Tu Vois Ma Mère, composed by Sidney Bechet, which appeared in Midnight in Paris, among others. Variety is the key here. There's Krakow's cover of People, made famous by Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl, flawlessly followed by the Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach song Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof. All it took was listening to The Big Picture once and Paul knew Krakauer was an artist he had to speak to. We hope you enjoy their heart-to-heart interview. Before we begin the interview, your support is always appreciated. Please just go to thepaulleslie.com support. We thank you for your support and interest. Now, let's say we play the tape. David Krakauer. An interview with Paul Leslie. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure to welcome our special guest, David Krakauer. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Paul. My pleasure. We're going to talk about this new album of yours. It's called The Big Picture. It's very interesting. It's where music and movies meet. So tell us, what gave you the inspiration to make an album like this? Now, this was actually the brainchild of my management, in particular my manager, Stephen Saporta, Joseph Baldassar, who's a wonderful producer, and myself working together to, to uh, find sort of something new for me to do, something different that explored a lot of the different facets of what I can do as a musician. And so the idea, you know, of course, I've, I've been identified with Eastern European Jewish klezmer for the past over 25 years since the late 1980s. We were thinking, what would, what would be something that would be in my theme and yet kind of a little more concept-driven and a little, yeah, different? And so we came up with this idea of doing music from iconic films and that all relate to Judaism in some way. So in a certain sense, it kind of a, more of an homage to myself as an American as opposed to being from an Eastern European Jewish background specifically. And yet the, the klezmer comes in a little bit subtly here and there, gives me an opportunity to play jazz, body and soul from Woody Allen's radio days. Some of the uh, movie themes relate directly to Judaism, like the pianist from the theme from the pianist, and also 
tradition, of course, from Fiddler on the Roof. But then some of the themes are more tangential or, or really reflect, let's say, a Jewish sensibility. So, of course, Woody Allen's movies, whether he's talking about life in the 40s in New York City, there's still always this, and, there's a, and then there's jazz, it's still seen through a Jewish lens, so to speak. And the, the March from the Love of Three Oranges by Prokofiev from Love and Death, Again, Woody Allen and the Si tu vois ma mère from Midnight in Paris of Sidney Bechet. And this gave me an opportunity to explore a very, very different palette than I've ever explored before. On that note, I was hoping you could take the listeners back to the old Orpheum Theater in Tannersville, New York. Ah. Tell us about that. The Orpheum Theater was in one of those classic little Art Deco theaters from the 30s. You know, it had that great old musty smell. You know, you settled in the seat and you, you place went, lights went out and then it was just absolute magic. And I mean, this was really, my family um, had a home there and, and actually my, my family had been going up to that area since the 1920s. My great-grandfather had a home there. So it's, it's a place that I have a great deal of attachment to. And the Orpheum was just one of those great places where you know, I saw so many movies for the first time. And it's, it's just, just incredible. And, you know, down the road in Hunter, New York, there was a, a beautiful old drive-in that was functional, I think, until the early 2000s. And it was actually kind of a ruin up until about a year or two ago, about a, actually maybe a year ago. And then they just tore it down. I was so sad because, you know, I wandered around in the ruins of this old drive-in theater and, you know, looking at the big screen and remembering seeing a lot of movies there, too, under the stars and just very, very magical times. I think we lose something with, uh, you know, even though DVDs and downloading movies is so easy now, we miss something from that collective experience. So uh, hopefully that will never die out completely. So you're saying sometimes we're missing the big picture? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, definitely. One of the great things about this album, the big picture, is you're playing music from just some of the best composers that have ever lived. John Kander, Marvin Hamlish, the songwriter Randy Newman. Could you pick a favorite track on here? by one of these these greats. They all are so beautiful. I think, to me, the Randy Newman's The Family from Avalon is, is one of my personal favorites. I think one day I'm going to get it arranged for myself and symphony orchestra because it's just so haunting and, and beautiful, and it's got that special Randy Newman flavor. And... While it doesn't sound really like Eastern European Jewish klezmer music, it evokes it, and it evokes an old Central European waltz, and it's got that perfect balance of, of a little tinge of nostalgia and a little 
uh, bittersweet humor in it. It's perfect for that for that movie. You're playing all of these songs that appear in famous motion pictures, but the director that is the most represented here is Woody Allen. Have you been a particular fan of his? Of course. I mean, Woody Allen is especially the very early movies to me take the money and run and you know bananas are two of my favorite movies ever and i mean woody allen is just so funny and i mean his uh his if you listen to his stand-up routines from the mid-60s just just amazing and his and his writings just such a brilliant person. But I think the reason that he was represented so heavily on this album is because his sensibility to music and his taste in music is so wide so that we were able to get a really vast range of things. So from uh, Body and Soul, from Radio Days, and then uh, the Si Tu Vois Ma Mère of Sidney Bechet's, which is so evocative and really, you know, comes from Bechet's time when he lived in Paris, the late 50s, actually was almost at the end of his life, 1958, that piece. And it, it, it evokes Paris so beautifully. And then Prokofiev's March from the Love of Three Oranges and just being able to use this range of different kinds of music was was key for us musically and artistically for the album as well. You mentioned in particular a moment ago that song composed by Sidney Bechet that appears in Midnight in Paris. Could you tell us a little bit about Sidney Bechet and what kind of influence he has had on your life, on your music? I call Sidney Bechet my teacher who I never met. And when I was about 11 years old, I got an LP of Sidney Bechet's Bechet of New Orleans on the old RCA Victor Vintage series. And the first cut was I Thought I Heard Buddy Bolden Say with Jelly Roll Morton from 1939. And Bechet's sound just comes soaring out of that disc. And of course, Bechet is known as a great soprano saxophone player, and he was kind of the the father of, of soprano sax and Coltrane and Dave Liebman and Steve Lacey and, you know, all of Wayne Shorter, everybody followed from, from Sidney Bechet. He was also an incredible clarinet player. And his records, particularly from the late 1930s, are amazing. And he could just make the clarinet talk in a special way, he had special fingerings that he used and things that he did with his tongue position. And But I think that when I heard him when I was 11, I said to myself, wow, this guy, this is not just music. This is somebody communicating on the highest level. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so for me, you know, when you have an influence that profound, it's not just like, wow, they can play fast or they can play high or they have this kind of tone. It goes beyond tone. It, it's something about a person's spirit and a person's wisdom and insights. And I think that that's always been what I aspire to as a musician myself, to, to tell stories 
and Sidney Bechet taught me that absolutely quintessential lesson. And then I went on to really become a great fan of jazz, as, you know, in addition to playing it and, and, and exploring it, just going on to listen to all the greats like uh, Louis Armstrong, Coleman Hawkins, Henry Red Allen, Billie Holiday, Coltrane, all the greats, Lester Young, Charlie Parker, to really explore their music and, and really check out how each one of them, I think of them more like philosophers, really, than musicians. They tell a story and they convey a whole world. That's been that great passion of my life, exploring jazz, and it all started with Sidney Bechet. You're touching on something really interesting there, in that a lot of these great instrumentalists, these great composers, they have always kept in mind a story, and a lot of people that maybe aren't as interested in jazz, they don't think of that music as being something that tells a story. Mm. How important do you think it is to keep the story in mind when you're performing? It's an interesting thing. I mean, it's not a literal, like, one isn't telling like a literal story, you know, once upon a time, et cetera, et cetera. It's more like, I think, it's a question of sort of going into a zone and going into a feeling, into a deep feeling and portraying things, you know, and it's going to be different for me than it is for each and every audience member. And it's always interesting to talk to the audience. People will say, I felt it this way and I heard it this way. The point is to make people feel. There's a lot of music out there I listen to and I don't feel a thing because the people are so involved in the pyrotechnics of it and they don't go to the essence of music. And I work with a lot of young people, a lot of students all the time, you know, and and, and telling them, you know, you got to find the feeling, you got to catch the mood, and 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 that's the story that we that we need to tell. When somebody listens to this album, the big picture, what do you want the listener to get out of that experience? You know, it, it's uh, again, I think everyone will take an, another thing from it, but when I heard the final product, you know, after we had gone through the whole thing, recorded it, mixed it, chose, there were a few songs that we didn't include in the album that we include in the show just because of, you know, to try to make a an album have a nice flow and some of the songs, you know, whatever, slowed it down or so we, we needed to find a good pace. And so when we chose everything and it was finally mastered and I sat back and I listened to the whole thing, I thought to myself, wow, this is the story of my family and life, our life in America, you know, especially touching on, on that Randy Newman song from Avalon, which is about a Jewish family arriving in America. And then my treatment of tradition, which is, you know, of course, tradition is so much about being Jewish, but it's also about being an assimilated, being assimilated from an immigrant background. And then I added a little funk twist, but I sort of kept the little 60s kitschiness in it, too. So just playing with that a little bit 
so that I kind of said, wow, this is, seems to be sort of this portrait of, of coming from, coming from an immigrant background and overcoming hardship. And then as I listened, I thought, this is the uni- universal story. If you're Jewish American or Irish American or Italian American or African American, it's really different circumstances, different struggles, different obstacles, but really all the same kind of core issues of overcoming things and, you know, what what we all go through as human beings to make it through in life and get from A to Z. Mm, fascinating. What is the best thing about being David Krakauer? <laughs> oh, gosh. For me, I think when I was in my teens, I began to play jazz, and I was playing with a guy named Anthony Coleman, who's a, a well-known composer, pianist, and educator. He's at the New England Conservatory in the improvisation department. Anthony's a great mind, you know, and a, a great, great, he has a, a great sense of the big picture. And I kind of think of him, you know, when I was a kid, we would talk about music and there was all this, all these great discussions at two in the morning, three in the morning, we would go see Duke Ellington when we were kids and Mingus and Ornette Coleman down at his loft in Prince Street and just a great time and I was playing jazz we were playing jazz together I was in his band and but then in my early 20s I had a a crisis of confidence I thought to myself I don't know if I can do this because to me the great goal in playing jazz and in improvising is to really find an individual voice you know like you can basically put on a recording and go like drop the needle, so to speak, and say, like, wow, that's Coleman Hawkins. And and just immediately identify these great people. And so I abandoned jazz in my early 20s, and I got really into classical music, did a whole thing, big career in chamber music in particular, and everything was going along fine and thriving. I missed that thing of being off the page. I missed the creativity of jazz. And so when I discovered Klezmer, I think it was a way back in because I said to myself, okay, I can learn this old music, listen to old recordings from the 1920s, learn it note for note. It's a lot of work, but at the same time, it felt very natural and very easy because it seemed like my grandmother's Yiddish somehow, her very strong Yiddish accent. And I thought, wow, that this is like Yiddish and music, and so I'll I'll try to find this, try to find this accent, so to speak, on the clarinet. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to be improvising in this style, so let me bring back the elements of jazz, but still use klezmer as a kind of cornerstone, as a kind of a, a bedrock. And so I started to bring in influences of like all the different colors Duke Ellington used in his band, the plunger mutes of the trumpets and the trombones and the glissandos of Barney Begard's clarinet. And, you know, uh, the trumpet was Cootie Williams and the trombone was Tricky Sam Nanton and, and uh, Johnny Hodges, the great alto saxophone 
saxophone player, and just to find these great colors and find the sort of how Coltrane used harmonic, uh, you know, natural harmonics to get these really great notes that could just tear your heart out, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I was bringing in all these influences and also influences of music that I had learned in uh, uh, contemporary classical music. I had an encounter with John Cage and Luciano Berrio and all these great composers, uh, 20th century composers. And so finding all of these things and putting that in the mu- in, into, the, into my improvising style, I eventually came up with my own recognizable sound. And so I think that if you say, what's the best thing about being me? I think that for me, that's the great victory that I was able to finally come to a place where I could have my own personal sound. That's my greatest, greatest victory, I think. For anyone who's listening to this interview, my question here is just very open-ended. What would you like to say to them? Oh, wow. I think that after 9-11, I began to really have the sense that music and the arts were more important than ever. And I think that in this world with a big, big emphasis on making money and technology and all these different things, and we tend to veer away from what I believe are core values. Maybe I'm naive, but I do think that in doing music, in doing the arts, we supply an antidote or at least a counterbalance to many of the really insane forces of the world today, of all all this hatred that's around, indifference to the environment, greed, a lot of greed now at the expense of so many people. And I think we need to to get ourselves together and start thinking like a planet instead of like all these different nations and all these different religions pitted against each other. I mean, I know I'm probably preaching to the converted, but but uh, I think we can all try to make a difference in some way and try to do good things in the world, and hopefully it'll hopefully it'll help because I don't see us on a great path now in a planetary way. So I think that's I try to do my bit. You know, everybody has their has their expertise and and you know i i hope i can use my expertise for as much good as possible in the world and you know if we all start thinking this way a little bit and i think supporting the arts is a good thing i think supporting arts education is an important thing and i think then looking towards being more conscious of the environment and taking care of each other and opening lines of communication with each other. This is very, very important. My last question, who is David Krakauer? (laughs) Well, in what sense? I mean... Somebody would say, oh, David Krakauer is the clarinet extraordinaire. But how do you view yourself? Who are you at heart? Who am I at heart? Well, you know, that's a law. (laughs) We could spend hours on that, as with any person... But I consider myself somebody who 
has worked hard at what I do. I have uh, spent a lot of time in my life trying to better myself as a human being and trying to, I guess I have a responsibility as a as a musician, as someone who goes out in the world, you know, a public figure of sorts in my own sphere. And so I think that I like to try to get to know people and to be an open person and share what I have. I mean, I think that a lot of times people might say, oh, you play music that's part of your culture, you know, Eastern European Jewish culture. And so I like to think of that as a kind of an open door message that I'm not standing behind the wall, waving a flag, preaching an ideology. I just want to say here, the door's open. This is my culture. Come in. I'm proud of it. I'm also reflecting that this is a, a culture that's moving and that's changing and that's evolving and that we should be all open to movement and to change and to self-betterment. And, you know, I consider myself a normal person, but I've had a lot of luck being able to play the clarinet and having a knack for it, having a gift for it. And that's something that I'm really grateful for every day because it's great to find something in life that you love. And I never, ever take that for granted. On that note, I'm very grateful for this interview. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. An honor. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day, and I appreciate this album very much. Thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. All right. Godspeed. Okay, you too. Take good care. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.